Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. This morning we're in the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, We are in chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Now, okay, we do have slides. Great. Oh, kiddos, you are dismissed. (laughs) Whoa. They were not happy that I forgot to dismiss them. Now. Okay, this morning we are in Jeremiah 1, starting in verse 4. I will read starting in verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, this is Jeremiah speaking, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book of J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, uh, Frodo is tasked with taking the Ring of Power to Mount Doom or to Mordor, where it and the evil that it had saturated all of existence would forever be uh, destroyed. Now, in order to do this, he'd have to leave the warmth and comforts of his home and life as he knew it in his hometown of the Shire. Now, on this journey, he and his fellowship of companions would risk everything. They'd risk their lives for the sake of nature itself. Now, Frodo, in particular, would bear the daunting weight of holding evil's lure constantly around his neck on a necklace where it would whisper into the ears of his mind and heart. Now, Frodo says, I am not made for perilous quests. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Such questions cannot be answered said the wizard Gandalf. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. This morning we'll see, as we look at God's call of the prophet of Jeremiah, a few things that are similar to Frodo. We'll see that his call was daunting, uncomfortable, life-threatening. But from the beginning, uh, and written throughout this call, the prophet both questions and doubts whether this is where he should be. 
And specifically, we're going to look at three components of the call. We're going to look at the nature of the call, the task of the call, and the comfort of the call. Let's start with the nature of the call. Again, in verse 4, Jeremiah writes, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Notice that it is God who calls Jeremiah, not Jeremiah who calls God. Do you see that? Do you see how God is actually the first portion, the, the subject here, not Jeremiah? I formed you. I knew you. I consecrated you. I appointed to you. In uh, the NIV Study Bible, the commentator there, his name is Ian, I think it's Deguid? Sure. He says, the Lord chooses his messengers carefully and sovereignly. The call is not an invitation, but a draft notice. There's no option of refusing to serve. The Lord always overrules the objection with the assurance that he will be with the prophet, empowering them for their task. It also often orients the reader to the nature of the particular ministry to which God has called the prophet. So the fact that it is God who calls Jeremiah, not Jeremiah who calls to God, it shows us that God's call is relentless, that it even overpowers. Uh, another you know, wizarding story, uh, Harry Potter, if you're familiar with those books, in the first book, uh, in the Sorcerer's Stone, or Philosopher's Stone, if you know the original version, uh, he's destined to be a wizard, this kid. And at the basically late elementary years, they go seven years to school through the time they become an adult, and he's supposed to go get trained at a wizarding school, right? And so he's destined to be this wizard. A letter comes to his house. He has no idea this is his calling. The letter shows up. His family doesn't want him to, into that. They reject it. Next day, letter comes. Next day, letter comes. Family continues to reject. Then the next, a few days later, letters come piling through the mail drop. And if you've seen the movie, you see how, like, they made this kid's movie, but it's super funny that, like, hundreds of letters are just flooding this house, and it freaks the family out because they're like, no, 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 we will not let him take this call to go be a wizard, to go study to be a wizard. And so they go off to some remote island in the UK, and they, they get away from any sort of means of being contacted. It's a remote island, there's no electricity, anything like that. They're just there, they're, they're taking a holiday because they're sick of the call being in their face. And even there, uh, someone comes and finds Harry. And he basically takes him. Um, and Harry's glad to go because he has not liked his adopted family. But even in that series, the, the Christ-like archetype figure that is Harry, or in Lord of the Rings, similarly, those Christ-like archetypes, they've got this calling that is relentless, that they can't turned down, even though they do run from it. Similarly, in the biblical prophets, all the way back to Moses, we often see them wrestle with their call. We see them denounce it, turn away, try and run. But this call is relentless. Uh, even in my own life, I'd say both vocationally in ministry, but then personally in my own life for heart change and transformation, uh, I too have ran from that call. Uh, I've definitely tried to leave vocational ministry a few times in my 12-ish years in it, or 13. Um, I've definitely tried. Uh, I've definitely doubted. 
but it continues. Uh, God continues to remind me and surround me with people that says, no, this is, this is what I have you. This is what I have you to do. But then even more so down on the ground, more you know, importantly into my own heart, my own mind, my own body, the restoration and transformation of my own life and bringing my whole life into submission to Jesus, uh, that too, how often I run from being confronted with the ways that my life is not in congruence with the way of Jesus. As someone who grew up, uh, you know, I was introduced to pornography in third grade, uh, and so I became an addict at a very young age. And for years, that was a very difficult thing to run from because it's also culturally acceptable, yes? Um, but at some point, God confronted me on the call, no, there's a better way to be human. I've designed sexuality and intimacy to be a more, uh, uh, to be carried out in a better manner. And so similarly, we all tend to likely have areas where we run from the call, the call that Jesus has in our life, whether it be in the ways to serve, in our households, our communities, our local churches, but even just the ways to let the Spirit convict us, challenge us, cause us to rethink, change the way we see each other and the way we live and love as Jesus in our communities. So notice that. Notice that's God who calls Jeremiah. But this leads us to that notice that the calling is intimate. God says, before I formed you, I knew you. The Hebrew word here for know indicates this intimacy of a very close relationship, often used for that of a marriage. This oneness between husband and wife. Eugene Peterson writes of this, we are known before we know. We are known before we know. The realization has a practical result. No longer do we run here and there, panicked and anxious, searching for answers to our life. Our lives are not puzzles to be figured out. Rather, we come to God who knows us and reveals to us the truth of our lives. Now, the fundamental mistake is to begin with ourselves and not God. He says, God is the center from which all life develops. If we use our ego as the center from which to plot the geometry of our lives, we will live eccentrically. All wise reflection corroborates scripture here. We enter a world we didn't create. We grow into a life already provided for us. We arrive in a complex of relationships with other wills and destinies that are already in full operation before we are even introduced. We are living in the middle of a story that was begun and will be concluded by another. And this other is God. Notice the intimacy of the call. Find yourself within the call of the people. Because see, Jeremiah's call is not just to Jeremiah, and it's not only about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a, a part of a people, and his call is to a people. And us, we get stuck thinking so much about ourselves and we find our identity so rooted solely in who I am and even who I am with Jesus, me and him. But now it's we. Jesus came to die for us, not just me. Jesus resurrected for his entire kingdom, not just me. 
and our stories begun far before we were around, and it'll likely be concluded far after we're gone. We're a part of that story, but let that also humble us. The last thing to notice there about the nature of the call is that Jeremiah is not called because he's qualified. He's qualified because he's called. So God doesn't see Jeremiah and like, oh, that's a good dude. I'm going to call that guy. No, he calls him, and because God called him, he's good. He's on the team. You think of a, a great athlete on any team that can basically bring up any player with him. You think of a, I, I'm a Lakers fan since I was a kid up until recently. Um, but like a, a player like Magic Johnson is known to have made his teammates better. That those players on another team, had they been on another team, would not have been anyone. But because they played with Magic, he brought them up. Their greatness wasn't necessarily in and of themselves. It was actually being brought out of them from, it's actually Magic's greatness in his game. And similarly, God calls us not because we are qualified in ourselves. No, he qualifies us because he calls us. We are now, who are in Christ, qualified to live and love for him. God calls Jeremiah even before Jeremiah has the opportunity to call God. We see that in the illustration that before I formed you in, your womb, in, the, mother, in the womb, I had called you. I knew you. Again, Eugene Peterson writes, Jeremiah's life didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's salvation didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's truth didn't start with Jeremiah. He entered the world in which the essential parts of his, his existence were already ancient history. So do we. The essential parts of his existence, already ancient history. Do we find ourselves in that reality, in that history? That eternal kingdom reality? He continues, our identities don't begin with us in themselves. There's something previous to what we think about ourselves, and that something is what God thinks of us. This means that everything we think and feel is by nature a response. And the one to whom we respond is God. We never speak the first word. We never make the first move. God is always previous. So the nature of God's call, it's completely dependent on Him. The intimacy of His call, that God isn't some distant manager of us on the job, but no, He's actively involved in our lives. This is what qualifies us. Next, let's look at the task of the call. If you look at verse 5b, and if you're unfamiliar with this, we basically break down verses. If you're only going to do like half a verse, the second half is b. So the second half of the verse, God says, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then jump down to 9b. And the Lord said to me, now I've put my words in your mouth. See today that I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, some of us, like me, uh, tend to be more reactive rather than proactive. So I'm a, I'm a classic procrastinator. Um, 
even now, I just started school this week, and last night was the end of the school week, and I was, you bet it, I was up doing homework last night till the end. Um, and uh, I'm like, the first week, Tyler, you're already in this? Yeah, I am already in this. Um, I see some other graduate students nodding. Um, <laughs> anyways, but we're steeped in a culture that opts for quick fixes or reactions rather than proactivity or doing the thorough work of restoration. So, for example, we opt for caffeine rather than sleeping more or taking a Sabbath. Uh, we procrastinate on work rather than plan and prepare ahead. We opt for over-the-counter medicine rather than taking care of our bodies and minds. We opt for legislating our own morality rather than seeking to listen, dialogue, and reason with those who are hurting and different from us and maybe bring more heart change in that manner. When it comes to gospel restoration and transformation in our lives and in the world, we who are in Jesus also can approach Christ and want a quick fix. So the example is January 1, what do a lot of us do? We get on the Bible app and we start a Bible reading plan and we think our life's going to be great. And a few days in, it's over. You already missed it. And it's still freezing cold out and it's miserable. And God, why didn't you answer me? Or we pray to God for a few days and nothing happened. He didn't do what I wanted. Nothing changed. If anything, he did exactly what I didn't want to do. He allowed something to happen that I didn't want to happen. Why didn't you do that, God? We tend to look for the quick fixes for God to... He's just our, I think of um, Sally and Peanuts, where we're coming up to her as a psychiatrist, and she is just, uh, oh, that's Lucy, huh? My bad. Sorry, Aaron, Aaron knows the characters more. Uh, but yeah, if you're familiar with the Peanuts comic strips, you know, they all go up, Charlie Brown often goes up to Lucy and asks for help and wants this, and she's five cents, I'll fix it for you right there. That's not how it works with God, right? We know this if we, it helps us when we find ourselves in the grand narrative of redemption that we can see that, hey, I'm but a blip on the timeline that has been going on for ages. And yes, I'm important and valuable to God, but at the same time, I think we know on the timeline that God works kind of slower and on a different timetable than us. He does things a little differently. Even now in this season, right, we're two years in and we're like, oh, this is so awful. I can't imagine the Israelites 40 years in the hot desert, right? Oh my goodness, can't imagine that. Imagine 40 years of COVID. Uh, <laughs> man, we want quick fixes, but we want that even with our own hearts, right? We want ways for God to change us quickly. But when God calls us to something... Well, we'd prefer what I would call spiritual cosmetics. We'd prefer a simple way to just put some cover up on, you know, when I've got, I've got awful acne, I've shared this before, but you know, ever put on a little, little something? No, that's not how it works. That's not going to change what's going on. Acne is an outward manifestation of an inward thing that I'm probably eating poorly or I've got something going on, right? Or you can take that another way, maybe a dietary thing. We don't need to go there, but I think you can go there in your mind that if things are not manifesting healthily, 
Diets probably need to be changed. I'll leave it at that. Something's wrong on the inside. There's something that needs to be changed. And similarly, we can approach Jesus that way. He wants us to get to the core, to the foundation. So when God calls first, uh, first calls us, it's always a complete rebuild. When He first calls someone to follow Him, it's a complete rebuild. And we know this because, well, if you look at Matthew 7, in verse 24, Jesus, at the end of His Sermon on the Mount, He's gone a couple chapters basically sharing these new kingdom ethics. What the way of how his world now works, how there's a better way to be human in him. And at the end, we often read Matthew 7 as these warnings to non Christians and Christians. Uh, but 7 is actually God warning people who think they're following Jesus. He's warning people who think they are God's people. And he's warning them. That man, when I call you, I don't call you just to like give me this or one hour a week or this. No, I call you to give me your life. I call you to potentially give me everything. And it might totally change. Or he might leave you in that, but bring beauty out of that. But sometimes it's, man, he pulls you out of a totally um, chaotic situation. Something that you didn't even think was a problem. But see, in, in uh, 724, Jesus writes this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but the house did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears my words, uh, these words of mine, and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Why does this relate? Um, man, for us who are in Christ, when we come to Jesus and we just say, Jesus, I'm only giving you two of 168 hours, or I'm only giving you, I'm only laying before you this part of my life. It's saying, I'm not going to just totally demolish the house that I've built of my life. I'm not going to totally allow you to take it down all the way to the bottom and build a new foundation. No, I'm just saying, hey, I'm going to put some curtains up. I'll let you put some curtains up, God. Maybe I'll let you paint the house. But let's not get in the walls. Let's not get deep in there. Let's not even let the building be declared unlivable. No, I'm only giving you, I'm only letting you change the curtains, God. I'm only letting you change the color of my hand towels. But no, God says, Jesus is saying, warning here, those who are doing that, those who are just letting me paint the walls of their house a different color rather than, no, if I need to, if I think it's valuable, let me totally demo your house of your life and rebuild it. And that's where Jeremiah's call is. It says to pluck up and pull down, destroy and overthrow, but then he says to build and replant. Now what does this mean? Well, I'm going to do a little bit of running through Jeremiah 
31 and 29. So if you go to Jeremiah 31, I don't have this up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, uh, and you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 31 in verse 28. What are these plans to tear down and build up his covenant people? Um, That God is tearing down the covenant people of Israel in order to build them up in newness of life. He's allowing these things to happen. In 31 and verse 28, it says, And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. And then if you turn right over to 29, starting in verse 1. Now we're going to hit a, a verse here that you might see on a, a ton of coffee cups. Um, I think it's a pretty misquoted passage, and we'll see why. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now this was after King uh, Jeconi and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans, the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. This town, Jerusalem, is in shambles. Now the letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, son of Shapan. It goes on, jump down to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, all my people who are out of my land, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Here's what God says to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. And here's the last part. For thus says the Lord, Only when Babylon's seventy years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and seek me with all your heart, or sorry, then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. There's a lot there. And reading Jeremiah is tough. It's a book that's not recorded in order. The stuff is likely all out of order. It's likely not written in one continuous story. It's a mixture of both story and prophecy and poetry. But with that section, we see that God plans to tear down and build up his covenant people. How does he tear them down? He actually sent them into exile. He sent them into Babylon. The task is to go into Babylon for Jeremiah. And that's partly where Jeremiah is so afraid. 
He's so afraid to go to leave the comforts of his home, to leave the comforts of his city, to leave the culture he's known, to step outside of the comforts of his comfortable Christian life, if you will, and to go befriend and be a witness in what he views as the darkness of his culture, of his city. That is what he's called to do. And it's in that that God says, actually, go, seek the welfare of the city. Live there. Eat their food. Like, make a life among them. Be in the world, but not of it. Don't retreat. Be in the world. Don't just go to your Christian haven. Go into the city. Go into your community. Hetty Lalaman, she's a commentator on the book of uh, Jeremiah. She writes, It is via judgment and exile that there will be a new future for the people of God. Uh, St. John Cassian, uh, from a few centuries back, he wrote, But you should know that we must work twice as hard to drive out vice as we do acquire virtue. And this is not simply our own opinion, but we were instructed by the opinion of the one who alone knows the strength and the method of his works. He points out that four things are required for getting rid of poisonous elements, to root up, to pull down, to waste, and to destroy. But in order to do good and acquire righteousness, all that is required is to build and to plant. It is then perfectly evident that it is harder, a harder thing to tear up and eradicate the ingrained passions of body and soul than to introduce and plant spiritual virtues. If you've ever done some deep soul work, I think you know those pains that he was summarizing. It is much harder to pull weeds out of the ground than to go plant and water seeds. The last component of the call, the comfort of the call. The call's daunting. But there is comfort in the call for Jeremiah and for us. Jeremiah said in verse 6, Lord, truly I do not know how to speak. I'm only a boy. Now they think, some think he really was a younger guy. Others think, now he's more just realizing, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not that experienced, I'm not that well-lived, or I'm kind of fearful, I'm kind of timid. Regardless, either way, whether it's more metaphorical or literal, God responds, do not say I'm only a boy. For you shall go to all whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. It's a daunting call to go into the unknown, to be light in darkness, to take the Spirit of God into the spirit of darkness. But again, Eugene Peterson writes, not with God, not a zero, not a minus. He says, I have a set-apart place that only I can fill. No one can substitute for me. No one can replace me. Before I was good for anything, God decided that I was good for what he was doing. My place in life doesn't depend on how well I do on the entrance examination. My place in life is not determined by what market there is for my type of personality. No, God is out to win the world in love 
And each person was selected in the way that Jeremiah was to be set apart to do it with him. He doesn't wait to see how we turn out to decide to choose or not to choose. No, before we were born, he chose us for his side. He consecrated us. See, that's, that's the comfort that helped me come to faith in the midst of a chaotic world. Because I personally couldn't reconcile what has happened in human history, the evils that have manifested in violence and war and hatred. I couldn't reconcile that with a world that had no meaning, that had no God, that had no meaning apart from the meaning I made. And I understand the contrary opinion is, well, how can a good God allow this? But see, our God, amongst other gods, is the one God that actually says there is meaning in the suffering. There is meaning in the pain. There is meaning in the toil. And I'm with you in it. I've entered it. I entered it through Jesus. I didn't leave you down there alone, but now I got my hands dirty. You know, a lot of us know those and have seen and are often critical of maybe we've had those managers or leaders in our life where we're like, they tell us what to do, but then they never get their hands dirty too. And then it, you know, the workers get kind of cynical and like, oh man, they always make us do the bad job. No, Jesus, he did the work. He came down. He got in the mud of life. And God is with us, is what he says to Jeremiah. He says, I'm with you, Jeremiah. He echoes uh, the psalmist in 23 where essentially that God will shadow him instead of death. While the psalmist was saying, I'm stuck in the valley of the shadow of death. No, God now is his covering. And even when Jeremiah, because Jeremiah goes through, if you read through, he has his doubts, he wavers, he runs, and we see that throughout the Scriptures, and maybe you've lived that your own life where you've ran for seasons. But guess what? God's still there. Where can I go where God's presence isn't? He's with you. Man, parents, perhaps, maybe your kid has wandered, and maybe you've been like, what are you doing? Or maybe a loved one or a friend has wandered. And you're like, I can't do anything about it. You feel powerless. You feel helpless. There is more comfort, I find, personally, in knowing that there's a very personal God who is intimately involved at every moment in human history. And, he, and He's in control. He's got this. And He is good, and we can trust Him to know that he's allowing what he desires to happen, happen. Uh, as we wrap up, the comfort of the call. While Jeremiah rejects God on the basis of his age, God calls out the real issue, fear. God addresses Jeremiah's fear with the assurance that we will be with him. He says, I am with you. I am with you and I will deliver you. 
Jeremiah doesn't need to be skilled. God says, I will supply the words. It's God's comforting presence in the face of potential rejection and hostility. And man, if you think, if you're fearful of taking your call to follow Jesus and be His light in our community, or even if it's in your household, know that Jeremiah went into a crazy environment. He was in Babylon. And some might say we, we too are in a new Babylon, whether it be here or um, Christian researchers have referred to it more of a, as a digital Babylon nowadays, a global digital Babylon. But we are called to enter Babylon today, seek the welfare of the city, to live in the world but not of it. And it's God's comforting presence that helps us and empowers us and know that it's not on me to get this done. He invites us to be a part of it. But man, if I mess up, the kingdom is not done. The kingdom is not forsaken. No, what gets us through is not our qualification. It gets us, what gets us through is that we are called. And really, by the one who called us. And we see this when Jesus sent out his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. His final words there, Jesus came to, him, uh, came to his apostles and his disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And here's the key. And remember, I love that he left them with this. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's as if Jesus knew these, this small group of people in the ancient Near East, in the midst of Rome, the most powerful nation at that point, this, this nation state that is very hostile to God's people, and God's original people are enslaved or in oppression in some manners, and it's as if they knew and saw that time that task at hand, and they're like, dude, they just killed our leader, and you're telling us to go change the world? Go bring your name to the world? They beat you. How are we going to make it? But he's reminding them, well, I just defeated death at this point, and know that my spirit will be with you. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on me. God is with you when you leave this place. God's with us now, and God's with you when you leave this place. God's been before you. He will be after you. And this ought to free you up. This ought to free us up as a church community from the burdens of shame and feelings of inadequacy and self-consciousness. Yes, we, it, there is a point where, yes, we should own at some point that we are inadequate apart from God. We are messed up apart from God. I am a messed up person apart from Jesus. No one knows that better than Jesus. It's not dependent on us. If anything, God's calling messed up people to go to messed up people to help redeem all people. So yes, we are inadequate. You are inadequate apart from Jesus. But remember, you're not qualified in yourself, but you're qualified by the one who calls you. 
We who are in Jesus are no longer seen as our own, but we're seen as Jesus. We've been given his righteousness. So the question begs for each of us, what has God called us to? What has God called us to? And odds are you're probably not called to be the next Jeremiah. As far as we can tell, we, we think Scripture is done being written. Um, but no, yeah, I mean, what is God calling you to? We're not all going to be a prophet. We're not all going to be a priest or a king or all those different callings. But we all have been given some sort of both spiritual gift as well as passions in ways that God has made us uniquely um, unique contributors to the kingdom. So, God does, is calling you to do something specific. Maybe you're in it, and maybe you're doubting it. Maybe you're like, is God with me in this? God's with you. God's with you. Maybe God's calling you out of something into something else, or to free yourself up for a season to figure out what, 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 where I ought I be. How, I, how ought I be serving you in this time? But the call of Jesus, the call for the follower of Jesus, is not to be a consumer, but a contributor. Yes, we consume God. Yes, we are with God, and we become like God. But we go, the, the, we get poured into by God to pour out to other people. So the call of Jesus' followers is not to ask, what have they done for me, but what can I do for them? Whether this be serving in your household, your local church community, your city, I encourage each of us, last week I was, uh, I was out sick, and uh, last week's passage, the message I had prepped was on 1 Corinthians 12, and uh, this week it went into 13 on the lectionary, if, if you're familiar with it, um, but I opted to choose Jeremiah. But I encourage you, if you are wrestling with this, on what is my gift, what is my place, do I have value in the kingdom, yes, if you're in Christ, you do, and we need you. The kingdom needs you. My, uh, my first pastor that um, I was a youth pastor under, he was a, uh, a big half-black, half-Mexican guy. He was a boxer. He, his shoulder width was about twice the size of me. He was huge. Um, and uh, I feel like he could literally break my back when he hugged me. And I don't think that's exaggerating. And he would look at me, scrawny little me, um, and he would say, dude, when you don't show up to church, you're robbing me. When you don't contribute to your church community, you're robbing me. Because I need you. I need you. And that, that illustration in 1 Corinthians 12, as the body of Christ, that we are not all the whole body, we are all just little members, but yet uniquely fit together. And man, when one of us is out, when one of, not, and I'm not saying, I'm not shaming you into you've got to be here every Sunday. I'm more just, if one of us is not pouring into the church community, we are suffering. We need each other. And you may say, who, me? Man, if you doubt that maybe the tiniest little role that you might play, if you doubt the significance of it, I call your bluff because in the middle of the night, when you stub your pinky toe, 
that little thing, even though you don't notice it most of your life, no one's like cognizantly like, I've got a pinky toe. No, but when you stub that thing, when that thing's out of, out of work, your life, it stinks, right? Like, it's, well, yeah, definitely say some words I shouldn't say when I do that or want to in my soul. So it goes with the body. Um, we all have a part to play. We are all called to Christ and to serve his kingdom. I encourage you to be looking into that passage, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. As we go forward as a church community in this new year, yes, I'll be asking you, I'll be reaching out to you, asking you, where do you think God's calling you? How has God uniquely gifted you and positioned you in our church community to love and serve your brothers and sisters of faith? And or to love and serve those who are outside our four walls. As we are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey His commands, but know that He is with us even till the end of the age. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your call. We thank You that You loved us before, before we messed up just the first time. Before our, maybe our first selfish inclination as a, as a tiny baby but even to much greater things that we progressively do that are not in line with your heart, God. We're grateful that our call is not rooted. It's not dependent upon our own righteousness. But no, we've been given the righteousness of Jesus if we're in you. And God, when you look at us who believe in and follow you, Jesus, that you no longer see you no longer see me solely as sinful, messed up Tyler. No, you see me as redeemed. You see me as who you are making me to be. Because you were before us, and you, are, and you will be after us, and you are always. You knew me before the beginning, and you know where you're taking me. And may that bring comfort, may that bring joy, May that bring fresh air, a deep breath to the lungs of our soul. May it spring life into us. And man, take that weight off our shoulders, Holy Spirit. That our past, it's been wiped away. Even our future. No, but our future is in you, Christ. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, help us as we continue to learn and practice the way of Jesus and what that means to follow you individually in our households, in our works, or in our jobs, in our, in our, and in our local church community, and, and in Dover and, and beyond. God, we ask that you would help us uh, grow in our gifting, grow in our passions, give us faith, help us gather together regularly and encourage each other. Help us tell one another, hey man, you're good at this, or you're super encouraging, or man, when I come to your house, I feel so welcomed.
I feel loved. I feel at home. Or man, when you challenge me, it doesn't feel condescending. It feels like you truly care about me. And those are spiritual things. Those are things that we can't do on our own, but that you, Spirit, have gifted us with. So help us at LifeBridge be your light in this community. Help us be a part of seeing uh, heaven come here in Dover. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.